to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 11, Witches Abroad. Witches Abroad is the 12th Discworld novel published in 1991. It is the third novel in the Witches series set after the events of Weird Sisters. After the death of Desiderata Hollow, a witch and fairy godmother, her wand is delivered to Magrat Garlic with two very specific instructions. One, she needs to travel to Genua to stop Emberella from marrying the prince. And two, under no circumstances are Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og to accompany her. However, to no one's surprise, these instructions make both witches determined to assist her in her magical road trip especially when Granny realizes that Ember's other fairy godmother is a sinister figure from her past. Happy endings haven't got anything on Granny Weatherwax. All right, so you know that I love this book, but I'm curious to know what your first reaction was. I really liked it. My first impressions, I don't know. The book started off on a weird note for me. I was very uncertain of what the vibes were meant to be. I really liked the book by the end. Like, it doesn't start with quite the beginning that Weird Sisters does, where Weird Sisters is like, this is Macbeth, this is Shakespeare. It kind of starts more like some of the other books we've read, like the Rincewind books, where it starts by talking about the Discworld specifically, and then sort of honing in on Linker and the witches. I do love that the dedication to this book is specifically references Weird Sisters. I I don't know if I've ever actually read the dedication to all of these books, and so it's been kind of fun going back through and reading them. But this dedication is dedicated to all those people, and why not, who after the publication of Weird Sisters deluged the author with their version of the words of the Hedgehog song, Dearie, Dearie Me. I'm thinking about Terry Pratchett receiving fan mail with different versions of what is a supposed to be a very dirty song that Nanny Og sings when she's drunk. And I, fa- I don't know why I found that charming, that people would send, like, fan fiction of the Hedgehog song. There's no dedication in Reaper Map. No, I don't believe that there is. I only think some of them have dedications. Yeah, so let's see. The Light Fantastic has no dedication. Moving Pictures is dedicated to the wonderful people who made this book possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, And then Sorcery. Many years ago, I saw in Bath, yeah, it's the one about how the luggage came to be. Yeah, so some of them do. Some of them do, some of them don't. I think Guards, Guards, Guards is the one about the stereotypical guard trope in fantasy novels who are doomed to be like beaten up or killed by the main character in the first 10 minutes of the film. I know that there's one about Elspace and Terry Pratchett or sorry, Elspace and Neil Gaiman, but I don't remember which book that is. I know I mentioned it at the time, but I don't remember which one. Let's talk a bit about Witches Abroad. So I'm really actually happy and I did not plan it this way. Really glad we read this one after Moving Pictures because I feel like one of the main threads of this book, which is we were doing Shakespeare in Weird Sisters, now we're moving on to fairy tales. One of the main threads in this book is sort of an inversion of what we were talking about in Moving Pictures because 
Victor in moving pictures is able to harness the power of narrative, of movie narrative, of cinema narrative in order to defeat the things from the dungeon dimensions. But in this book, the power of narrative is being used for evil, right? The the villain Lilith is using the power of fairy tales and happy endings in order to sort of force people to live the way that she thinks that they ought to live. And Granny is sort of the anti-narrative. Like she's the one who's who's coming in and trying to disrupt the narrative. She has a lot of thoughts about narrative and predestination and and trying to make people into characters instead of letting them make their own choices. I just think that's a really interesting contrast. So I'm really happy that I we read this one after we read Moving Pictures. So let's go ahead and start there. What did you think about the sort of the fairy tale themes in this book? I'm not a big fan of fairy tales on their own, but when they're blend, I like I like when they're blended into something, mm-hmm. into a narrative. You know what I mean? Where or where they bring in like a mythological tradition and have that be the backbone of like a story that's in say a modern day or whatever. So it was a bit. I was a bit reticent going in, not reticent, but like hesitant, being like, "Oh, is this just going to be fairy tales?" But I I like the way that it's handled where they're all happening at once and the problems that are associated with it. And it's a quote from very near the end of the book, but it's literally like at the top underneath the 12th Discworld novel on the back of my book, the one that Granny Weatherwax says, things have come to an end, see? That's how it works when you turn the world into stories. You should never have done that. You shouldn't treat people like they was characters, like they was things. But if you do, then you've got to know where the story is. So I like that, and I like, I, like you said, I think it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting continuation on what happened in moving pictures, you know, where you have to obey the rules, the logic of, um, of cinema, you know, uh, and in this one, Lily Weatherwax wants them to follow the logic of the stories, but Granny Weatherwax. You know, it's like, well, no, people got to make their decisions for themselves. And that's headology. What's interesting is that Lilith sees stories as so important that when she's obviously in charge of Genoa, I definitely want to talk about Genoa as a location. But I think it's interesting how she basically kills anyone in the city who doesn't fit into their role as a part of the story. She calls it crimes against narrative expectation. Yeah. And so it's this idea of like, if you're a toy maker, you need to be jolly and fat and tell stories to children. You know, if you're a baker, you need to sing, you know, while you're baking. Like all of these things are like tropes from fairy tales. But the idea is, is that they're invested with power. If if you don't fit into it, then she sees that as a threat to her power. We can talk about Lilith because I think she's a fascinating villain. We are introduced to her at the beginning. Her name, she's, we're told that her name is Lilith, which is an interesting reference to some Jewish mythological traditions. But she is very powerful. She's the other godmother, right? Like you're supposed to get to. And so Emmerella, who's clearly a reference to Cinderella. <laughs> is she has her two godmothers and one of them is Desterada and the other one is Lilith. But Lilith is the one who is convinced that she needs to marry the prince. She needs to perform 
this story and she has basically taken over the city of Genua in order to make this particular story, along with a couple of other stories, because she likes to blend them together, like you said. She wants this all to happen. And we find out about halfway through the novel that her name is actually Lily Weatherlax and that she is Granny's older sister who was kicked out as a teenager. What are your thoughts on Lilith? Lilith Lily. I thought she was an okay villain. I mean, like, she's not by any means the worst villain we've had in the, series, in the series so far. But also, I think she's a better antagonist specifically to Granny Weatherwax than she is, like, an antagonist in the novel. Uh, like, <clears throat> I was more invested in this, like, dichotomy between them, especially the fact that they were, like, everyone gets to the good and the bad one. And this idea of duality and how things are meant to be. And Lilith thinks she's the good one. Yeah, they both do. It's interesting because she she insists that she's the good one because she's the one making the story happen. And who would stand in the way of a story? Like, that must make you the bad one. Yeah. And it gets into an awful lot of, like, really good ideological discussions, you know, where, like, when they're deciding to... uh you know, get all the, the coachmen drunk and to to tear up the dress that Umbrella was going to wear, where they were like, oh, well, it must be okay because we're the good ones. And if we do this in service of a just cause, then, you know, our actions are thereby excused. Whereas, you know, like, ideologically, Lilith is doing what she thinks is good because she's giving people what they want. But it's like, what is it that Granny says when she is she's going to deal or she's going to duel with um with Mrs. Gogol? Yeah, uh, here it is. She said, "But you hate Godmother's Mistress Weatherwax," said Mrs. Gogol. "We're the other kind," said Granny. "We're the kind that gives people what they know they really need, not what they think they ought to want." You know. Yeah, and you have to, like, read that a couple of times to, like, work it out. And they, he, the narrator makes kind of a joke about that, about how much of a mouthful that is. But it is it is kind of true that Granny has thought out the consequences of using magic in this way and knows that it doesn't go anywhere good. Like, this is a theme throughout all of the witches' books where she says, you know, witches being in charge is bad. That's not a good thing to have witches in charge. You don't use magic to rule. You can use magic to prevent bad things from happening, but you can't make things out of magic in that way or it'll go bad immediately. There is the sense that perhaps Granny has thought through this a little bit more clearly than Lilith has. Mm. I also like the idea that there's this constant theme about how a weatherwax never loses or weatherwaxes don't like to lose, but one of them's going to learn. Yeah. In this narrative, I that it seems very um western to me, like you know, the two the duelists or the the uh, gunmen, right, that are like they never lose, but one of them's going to learn how to tonight. And there's even kind of a scene where she's like facing off against Lilith where she kind of like frees her hands like they're going to actually duel. I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, but it's also like with that, if you're the fastest gun in the West, then you're also the slowest gun in the West because everyone else is dead. 
Right. But is it time now for a very early in the episode, Nigel quotes the map? Of course. It's always time. A weatherwax never loses, but one of us is going to have to learn tonight. It reminds me of the song Black Pear Tree, which came off of an early 2000s EP that they did with Khaki King. Quite a heartbreaking song, which is about like getting out of a toxic, bad relationship. And it's framed in like growing this black pear tree from a seed. Yeah, so I sat there, I set the sapling in the hole, started gently tamping down the dirt. I saw the future in a dream last night. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get hurt. I hope it's not me, but I suspect it's going to have to be, which, I mean, if you want to like really apply it to the novel, you know, Granny Weatherwax ends up with cuts all her up and down her arm, basically in a coma from trying to get to Lily after she goes into the mirror. But then, yeah, at the end, I think is the most uncompromising one. So it goes, and when it's time came, I could see it happen. Blossoms black and sweet as Texas crude. I saw the future flowering like a ruptured vessel. Somebody's going to get screwed. It won't be me. Someday I am going to walk out of here free. And what's interesting with that song is that the way the rhythm goes, because normally they do the, um, like the double line where they go, like, somebody's going to get hurt, somebody's going to get hurt. But they just go, somebody's going to get screwed. And there's a pause between that and it won't be me, where you can infer a line which rhymes similarly with screwed. So, you know, like, it's going to be you. Then the narrator is focusing on just getting out of there for themselves, which, again, if we're going to apply it really to the text, which I suppose is the point of these segments, you know, it's like Mrs. Goggall says to Baron Saturday, you know, but it's just not of the kind that anyone thinks is going to happen. Right. And this idea, I, I like the idea of like, I hope it's not me, but it might be because there's this really great line. There's a lot about winning and losing and how witches win and how they lose in this book. But there's the line at the very end where Nanny Og, as she's stitching up Granny, you know, her arm, all these cuts on her arms where she says, oh, Esme, Esme, you do take winning hard. And this idea of like, <sighs> Granny always wins, right? Like that's like part of her her mystique, her power, right? Yeah. So she always wins, but winning for her comes at a cost. And this time it's her sister. And she doesn't want to lose her sister, even though she her sister stands for everything that she hates. And she knows that she has to win in this particular situation. She still tries to give her all of the options out at the beginning. Like she says, you could just come back with us. You could be a witch in Lanker. You know, we we need more witches. And then she tries to save her from the mirror when Lilith's mirror magic catches up with her. So, like, this idea of, like, taking winning a hard, like, you win, but you also lose. Like, you have to sacrifice in order to win. Yeah, but it's also, like, deliberately her fault that Lilith gets sucked into the mirror because she breaks the mirror only on one side, causing this cascade effect to ripple through the many mirrors. Um, right. You know, so... You have to you have to also think that maybe she does blame herself. Granny Weatherwax is so uncompromising and it comes off as arrogance. We've talked about that before. Sometimes it comes off as like narcissism a little bit or self absorption in other ways. But I think it's really telling 
I think about this scene a lot when I think about Granny Weatherwax, where Lilith is stuck in the mirror and death tells her, well, you're stuck between life and death. And the only way out is when you find the reflection of yourself that's the real one. And so she's like running through these reflections trying to find it. But Granny, oh, when she's presented with the same. Yeah. No, and Granny, I read it when as she's pre- she has to find the mirror that's real. No, she has to find the reflection of herself that's real. Ah, and okay. so she's running through all the reflections trying to find the real one. But when Granny Weatherwax is presented with the same choice, she immediately looks down at herself and says, this one. And I think that that is Granny Weatherwax in a nutshell. Like, we talked about this with Reaper Man, this whole idea of, like, there's no like there's no real right or wrong, only places to stand. Granny Weatherwax knows exactly where she stands, and she knows that it's not always easy to be herself or to do the things that she does. And I don't think she would necessarily say... She's not like Lilith in the sense that she says, well, I do this for the good of everybody else, but she has to do something. And so this is what she chooses to do, and she stands by those choices. Mm. But it's also like, regardless of whether or not it was the correct answer before, like her answer kind of made it the correct answer by her answering. Yes. You know, like you have to choose something. Yeah, exactly. And Granny Weatherwax is that uncompromising in what she believes that therefore it must be true. I thinking more about me thinking you had to find the mirror that was the real one out. I think that's an interesting reading of it because Lily instantly, like, because she's so disconnected from what people actually want and how people actually are and doesn't know headology that she tries and just finds a literal mirror, whereas, like, when Granny looks at herself and says, it's me, you know, like, she's a mirror. She's the mirror of Lily. Yeah, that is the other thing. They are a double as well Mm. because we're told Lily looks exactly like her, only better because she's evil and evil people always look a little bit better than than good people yeah because <laughs> evil gets to go home on friday early on friday that that was one of my favorite lines evil always gets to go home early on fridays mm. there's a lot about witches and mirrors like mirrors as a source of magic has been that's a, that's an idea that's been around for a long time i mean think about snow white which is not a fairy tale that gets referenced in this but the idea of the mirror is the magic mirror is from Snow White. There's also like a lot of other fantasy books that delve into this idea of using mirrors as portals or using them as as sources of power. You would hate this book, Nigel, because I know you don't like romances, mm-hmm. but there is a really wonderful romance book for those of you who do like romances called very luridly Wicked Deeds on a Winter's Night by Cresley Cole. And they really explore the idea of this witch named Mariketta, who is a, she's like a chosen one scenario. Like she's like the witch that's going to like grow up and save all the witches and et cetera, et cetera. But her magic specifically comes from mirrors. And the idea is that she is so powerful because she's able to draw on this mirror magic, but she can't look at a mirror for too long or she'll get fixated by her own reflection and like go into a trance. And so like, I like the idea that that is perhaps, I mean, that obviously came out long after witches abroad, but the idea of like mirrors stealing part of your soul 
or not getting in between two mirrors because the reflection of a reflection like that can that can stretch you a little bit too thin. There's only so much of you to go around. Broadening what magic is because we have the kind of duality between headology and geometry, basically that the wizards use. Although in the last film or in the last film in the last book we did moving pictures senior faculty use headology when they go to the cinema by putting like bits of wire around their beards to make them look fake but this one like it introduced this mirror magic which they thought was cool and then also like a surprisingly not racist depiction of Vudan. so um yeah I, I really liked it. Like, Mirror Magic is always cool, but what I really liked was that the granny was wary of it from the start, you know, and this whole, like, superstition thing before you even knew the the twist that Lily looked like her because she was her older sister. You know, this whole not trusting the face you see in the mirror because it keeps saying the face was hers. Yeah. And so, like, you know, they're playing the pronoun game to get you to feel vague, but, like, it, I think it's an interesting choice when it's mirror magic and getting caught between two mirrors, but in this case, it's two people. There's a lot about Granny and Lilith's relationship that is the the two paths, the two different paths taken, because there's a lot in this book about how if Granny was bad, she'd be worse than Lilith, because she's she understands people perhaps better or she's more powerful or something like that. And the idea that Nanny Og brings it up at one point and then Granny Weatherwax confirms it in her showdown with Lilith where she says, you know, you left and I had to be the good one and I'll never forgive you for that. Like the idea of, you know, she, Granny Weatherwax is not a nice person and she's not a good person by inclination, but she has to be good in order to, because she's so powerful that she knows if she was anything else, it would just destroy her and everyone around her. It's explicitly what Nanny, or what um, Granny Weatherwax is against, because Granny Weatherwax is like making people see, hopefully, what they need to do so they can make that choice themselves. But she never got a chance to make a choice. Right. You know, her role was kind of, Lilith made it predestined for her by choosing the only other option. You can also say a lot about like siblings and the ways in which like when you have a sibling who's really irresponsible or making bad choices, a lot of times the parents will sort of like swing too hard in the opposite direction with like the younger sibling, like the idea of like, oh, well, she's the bad one. So you have to be the good one. You have to be the responsible one. And so I think that there might be a little bit of that going on here as well. But yeah, like this idea of not, she like doesn't have a choice. And Nan- I'm trying to find where Nanny Og talks about it because it's great. Where she says, oh right, this is when Magrat is like really angry at Granny. She hardly ever does real magic. What good is being a witch if you don't do magic? Why doesn't she use it to help people? Nanny peered at her through the pipe smoke. Because she knows how good she'd be at it, I suppose, she said. Anyway, I've known her for a long time. Known the whole family. All the Weatherwaxes is good at magic, even the men. They've got this magical streak in them, kind of like a curse. Anyways, she thinks you can't help people with magic. Not properly. It's true, too. Then what good? Nanny prodded at the pipe with a match. I seem to recall she come over and helped you out when you had that spot of plague in your village, she said. 
Worked around the clock, I recall. Never known her not to treat someone ill who needed it, even when they, you know, were pretty oozy. And when that big old troll that lives under Broken Mountain came down for help because his wife was sick and everyone threw rocks at him, I remember it was Esme that went back with him and delivered the baby. Ha! And then when old Chicken Wire Hopkins threw a rock at Esme a little while afterwards, all his barns were mysteriously trampled flat in the night. She always said, you can't help people with magic, but you can help them with skin by doing real things, she meant. I'm not saying she's not basically a nice person, Magrat began. Ha, huh, I am. You'd have to go a long day's journey to find someone basically nastier than Esme, said Danny Og, and that's me saying it. She knows exactly what she is. She was born to be good, and she doesn't like it. Like, this idea of, like, knowing that you're a good person, but knowing how much easier it would be not to be a good person. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, I don't know, it's weirdly I thought of the Stormlight Archive. Because it's, the like, the tenets that Kaladin has to learn to accept. Where it's like, you gotta look after everyone, no matter who they are. This is the realization that he comes to after Gavilar gets murdered. You know, where he's kind of like, well, he's a bad ruler, so we need to take him out. But then the realization is that he you have to look after everyone, no matter their morality. Because it's your own inner morality. And so, like, I think that's what Granny Weatherwax is doing. And it's it's interesting as well to go back because Rinsman is another person who, when it comes down to it, you know he'll he'll pay you back with skin. It, you know he's got skin in the game for better or worse. And it's what Granny Weatherwax says near the very end to to Nanny Gogol or to Mrs. Gogol and to Lily. You know that this isn't headology; it's skin. Unlike, so I think you're right to compare her to Rincewind because some of the humor that comes from Rincewind as a character is the fact that he's a main character but doesn't want to be the main character. I think that this situation is very similar to Granny, who is a main character because she's so powerful, because she understands headology so well. But unlike Rincewind, well, like Rincewind, she doesn't want to be the main character. She kind of, she wishes she could live a less stressful life, I think. But she knows that she is, and she's accepted it in a way that I think Rincewind hasn't up until maybe the end of Sorcery. And so she accepts that that's who she is, and that's her place in the world. And that's where I think a lot of her overweening confidence comes from. Yeah. But she hates but- it. Hmm. To that, and to continue with the uh, comparisons, where it's like, as well, Granny Weatherwax loses her hat yes, she at does. one stage, and they talk about, well, what's a, you know, like, wizards aren't really wizards if they don't have a hat, which then goes back to, you know, Rinswin's belief that he needs to have a hat and it needs to display through the use of it being written on it, the, the fact that he's a wizard because that's who he is and he doesn't know who he'll be outside of it. And then it says, like, you know, you always see wizards with it, and witches too, as well. But then, with the whole changing things to something that they weren't originally, you know, where shape is this kind of memory of what things settle as most, and the only way to truly change shape would be through sorcery. To go back to what you said earlier, too, about, like, the different kinds of magic in this, there is a really fun place in this where they're talking about granny weatherwax and how she knows the whole thing about like how stories want to be told and they want to follow certain patterns and it really 
highlights the difference yet again between headology and geometry, which is the wizard's magic. Granny Weatherwax wouldn't know what a pattern of quantum inevitability was if she found it eating her dinner. If you mentioned the words paradigms of space-time to her, she'd just say, what? But that didn't mean she was ignorant. It just meant she didn't have any truck with words, especially gibberish. She knew that there were certain things that happened continually in human history, like three-dimensional cliches, stories. And I like this idea that, like, in this particular case, the wizards would also know what was going on here, but they would have a completely different paradigm for understanding it because their magic comes from a place of geometry or science or whatever it is you want to call it. Whereas she comes from a place where it's like, it doesn't matter what it's called, but I know what it is. Yeah, but also, like, I mean, the wizards are not going to go out and fix this problem in Genua because that would require them to go out places out far in. Yep. Um, which I know is a problem with the witches. The, like, I mean, the whole point is that they're, like, the witches are old women and the wizards are all old men. And, you know, like, well, they're the old... No, but like with the exception of that, and Rincewind is comparatively young as well, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, and of course, like yeah. people like Ponder Stibbins are pretty young, but they're like post grads. But like they're our main point of entry mm-hmm. for a lot of the uh, for a lot of like getting into them because like they're kind of the outsider to this cast nearly, and so they're 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 very much representing. And I know we t- we talked about how like the wizards are just emblematic of the sexless upper British, you know, upper class British regime. And it's the same thing here, you know, where they're talking about like, oh, I don't want to eat any of the foods when I go on holidays because they're foreign and that kind of thing. You know, you see that all the time with British people arguing, here we go, another staple of the podcast, me bashing on the Brits. (laughs) I'd say that about Granny, but I'm not sure I'd say it about Nanny. Nanny seems pretty fascinated. By but she's travel. always been, she's always been the more open-minded of the two. And I would definitely not describe her as sexless, for no. sure. But I've only ever said that about the wizards, <laughs> so don't. Oh, yeah. I see. Okay. Nanny Ock has always been more, not sexually open, but sexually frank with the people around her yeah. and how she is. And especially like how she was when she was younger, she seems far more tolerant of new belief. Especially like in this book, she seems less harsh on Margaret learning or Margaret learning self defense from a book than Esme does. She has a very live and let live attitude towards life. Yeah, I mean, like everything is made better by something with bananas and Roman. <laughs> She knew how to start spelling it, but she didn't know when to stop. That is that is a really great joke. Mm. I love the relationship between Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og. And like you said, Equal Rights doesn't feel like a witch's book because it doesn't have Nanny Og in it. There's this great line near the beginning, and it comes up again later, where they're talking. It's when the witches are having their meeting. They're... They're meeting on the mountains, right? And they're talking about all the witches. and But they're specifically talking about how witches don't like each other because they're like, they're like cats. They're solitary. They are non-hierarchical. They only really meet up when they have to. And so they're talking about how these meetings are pretty, are pretty rare. 
Granny Weatherwax looked at her sister witches. Gammer Brevis she couldn't stand. The old woman taught a school on the other side of the mountain and had a nasty habit of being reasonable when provoked. And old Mother Dismas was possibly the most useless sibyl in the history of oracular revelation. And Granny really couldn't be having it all with Nanny Og, who was her best friend. <laughs> I love that line. She couldn't be having it all with Nanny Og, who was her best friend. <laughs> She says it again later where she describes Nanny Og as a disgusting baggage and Nanny Og is like, that's me. Yeah. Like they're just, they're so, they're, they're so good together as a duo. Yeah. Like the scene where they have to share a bed and um, now that has like a whole other connotation in the uh, fanfic era of like, they go to a hotel, but oh no, there's only one bed. Yeah. It's called one bed. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, that's not the case with this, because they're not meant to be shipped. And I think if you ship Githa Og and Esme Weatherwax, you're, you're a fucking weirdo. I, have, I think they have a queer platonic relationship. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's, there's no... Of course, I also think that Granny Weatherwax is ace, but that's a whole different thing. And, like, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't have your interpretations, but, like, it's explicitly not what their character dynamic is. And I don't think no. they'd ever they ever would not because they're like homophobic internally or externally they're just not interested in one another that way no but that like comedic moment where danny Ogg just goes out like a light and is snoring like a chainsaw and <laughs> granny weatherwax keeps hitting danny Ogg, being like i swore i swore i could hear a noise you know it was really really loud and then danny Ogg's like well i didn't hear anything <laughs> Yeah, I just, I love all of their interactions. I loved Nanny getting both of them drunk at the village with the, the running of the bulls. That was just so funny to me. Like, these three, like, women, slightly odd women, like, just completely disrupting this festival because they just don't understand what's going on. And I, uh, I just love their relationship. What about Magrat? We actually get her back in this book, too. They don't spend a lot of time in Lanker, so we don't get to see Vernus or any of the other really castle characters in this. But it's obvious that she's really struggling with understanding her relationship to Vernus and her her kind of her self-identity because she wants to establish herself as a independent person who has her own identity but she's still clearly very under the shadow of the other two witches as well. What do you think about her in this book? Yeah, I was kind of disappointed that she didn't end up with Varence in the end, or at least for the moment, because that seemed like a done deal. Now, obviously, like, I'm not saying that she should have gotten together with him and stayed like that if, as she said, she did, you know, she felt like a sex object. <laughs> but like I thought there was it was a genuinely okay relationship. Her character arc towards being a more empowered, like modern woman. You know you know how we said in Reaperman how um Ridcully is kind of like the eighties father of a nuclear family who gets really into like, you know, that sort of like power yoga style. I think Yeah by that token like, Magrat is the female equivalent of, like, young women in the 80s, kind of, you know, coming out of the shadow of the 50s and 60s into this more liberate, like, obviously, no time has ever been a good time for women. We live in a male-led 
you know, society, and that's where the, the brunt of the privilege is. But it was a more liberating time. There was less kind of societal pressures on them. Obviously, there was still some. But, you know, like, you had that, and they would go to exercise. And this whole, like, self-defense class thing seems very, like, in keeping with that. Did you notice who wrote her self-defense book, Instruction Manual? Yes, a uh, a certain Lobsang Dibbler. <laughs> Yet again, we have a reference to the Dibbler clan. Um, and again, it seems very weird that Dibbler is his last name, and it's a thing which is shared with other people. I assumed it was Dibbler taking on a name that he thought was more, like, in line with someone who would write a martial arts manual. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. In Guards, Guards, they explicitly make reference to a different person called Lobsang that Uh. Dibbler is buying from. And so it's only... He's only ever referred to as Lobsang, but I think he's a monk, which would make sense with this, like, Path of the Scorpion thing, and they're going to a temple. Uh, or, or that's what Magra suggests near the end of the novel. And so they only ever referred to him as Lobsang in Guards Guards. So the relationship wasn't clear, but also may- maybe it is. But it would be very weird for, this, for there to be two people called Lobsang. Maybe it's like a co-written book and they just put their names together. Like Lobsang did the book, but Dibbler does the marketing. I feel like you're reaching. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I just think that's interesting that Lobsang Dibbler is the the author, the listed author of of the book that Magrat is learning a self-defense from. Now, just another thing about name and how like even the men are cursed with even the men are cursed with magic in the Weatherwax family. I feel like that explains Galder Weatherwax in book two. Yeah, I forgot to mention that when I brought that up. I I took that as a direct reference to Galder Weatherwax, that he is a distant relation of hers. There may or may not be more discussion of that in later books. Okay. Time will tell. One of the main internal conflicts of this book is between Magrat and Granny, which is something that we're going to see throughout the series, is that often, whether it's Magrat or someone else, Granny, because of the way that she does things, because she is just so much herself and she knows her role in the world and she's not a particularly nice person. She's not nice to Magrat in this book. She often will clash with especially younger members of the trio. And so whether it's Magrat or another character that comes along later that takes Magrat's place in this trio or even other witches that she mentors in other books, we often get this sort of clash between what they think magic should be and what she and what she does, which is the headology. She calls Magrat a wet hen at one point, and mm. it really hurts Magrat's feelings. How did you feel about this sort of conflict between Granny and Magrat? I didn't like it. Or why? I don't know, because it was like this... It, it felt like unnecessary tension, almost to a point, but then, kind of with the reveal that Lily was, it kind of, it it kind of, like, focused that in a bit, because she has a link to this other godmother, so it nearly comes across that, like, she's trying to make sure that Magrat doesn't end up like Lily in the same, like, in, in Granny Weatherwax's own particular way, you know? Which is not an easy way. No. At all. Uh, it's very much like uh, it's very much like my way or the highway, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and like Magrat, she had a moment where she thought about this at Weird Sisters, and we talked about it a little bit then, but she has another moment in this book too where she's like, Granny Weatherwax just expects everyone to operate at the same level that she does, and when you don't, she gets very disappointed and huffy about it. And so, it yeah, it does tend to lead up to these types of conflicts, especially... Because I think Nanny has since learned how to manage Granny. Because Nanny is the, Nanny is clearly not the leader of the group. Granny is clearly the leader. But Nanny has learned how to like work around Granny. And she does still pretty much does what she wants when she thinks it's important. But Magrat hasn't really learned how to manage Granny yet. She just has this very head-on approach to her conflicts with Granny, which causes all these arguments. I... Did think it was interesting that when Granny and Magrat were fighting, Nanny is like, I love the image of them on the road where one of them is like really far ahead and the other one's really far behind, and Nanny is just in the middle <laughs> with Creepo. Yeah, just talking. just trying. She's like, I'm not taking anybody's side. So yeah, we also get uh, some more insight on why Magrat's name is Magrat. It turns out her mother didn't know how to spell, and that is why she had tried to name her Margaret. But didn't know how to spell, and so she ended up naming her Magrat, and Magrat blames her name for her personality. She thinks if she'd been a Margaret, she would have been a uh, someone with more of a backbone. Mm. Uh, the other thing I really loved about this book, and I think about it a lot, is that even though she has these conflicts with Granny, even though Granny doesn't do magic the way that Magrat thinks that maybe it should be done... She's obviously learned a lot from Granny because there's this really great scene where it says that Magra is a collector of magical knives and that she believes a lot in magical knives, but that she had learned from Granny that actually the best knife is a bread knife because you you can do anything you could do with a magical knife with a bread knife and then you can cut bread afterwards. Mm. So like the idea is that even though Magra does have these like spats with Granny She's clearly learned a lot about headology from Granny. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose on the thoughts of names and, like, personalities, again, like, Magrat, her whole character is self-discovery in this book. That's her whole character arc. Yes. And learning to accommodate the, you know, like, the help from, like, Margaret needs to learn to take advice, and Granny Weatherwax needs to learn that sometimes people don't need her advice all the time. <laughs> that doesn't sound like Granny. Yeah, she needs to learn it, but, like, I mean, will she? Because mm. It's a great question. Yeah, because I think, like, I, I think Discworld is very good at, like, putting forward a character arc and being like, this is where the character needs to get to. And then being like, okay, but like, why? You know, because it's like, th that's what the story wants them to do, but like, is it what the character wants them to do? So, like, it's just really interesting. And in this book, especially because it's this meta-commentary on how stories work, you know, to have a character be resistant. And this is what Rincewin does as well. He's resistant to the idea of being the protagonist. And I think that Granny Weatherwax is resistant to the idea of character development in a way. 
Yeah. Like, she definitely grows as a character, but she doesn't develop as a character, because she she's a character who knows exactly who she is, and she's just waiting for the world to, like, catch up. Right. I mean, she's always going to be the person that looks down and says, this one's the real one. Mm. So... You know, she knows exactly where she stands and exactly who she is. Yeah. And then we also get a great scene in this where she lets Magret borrow some of her self-confidence when she, when they trick her. Well, they don't trick her, but when they put have her go to the ball in Ember Ella's place and she's completely afraid and petrified about pretending to be Ember Ella and Granny gives her some of a, a boost of self-confidence. Yeah. That was fun. That was a very fun moment. I like the idea where she's like, maybe Granny feels like this all the time. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> Which I just, maybe. One of the other things I really loved was the this whole metaphor about the stepsisters. So Emberella has these two stepsisters who are snakes. They are literal snakes that Lilith has transformed into humans. Or they're snakes that still think they're snakes, but they look human. And that's terrifying, by the way. The the descriptions of the stepsisters in this, especially when one of them is chasing after Granny with her mouth open, is like one of the most terrifying images, I think, in this book. But I love the showdown between them and Magrat because the implication is, is that Magrat is kind of, she has like the personality of like a small rodent. And so they're like attracted to her because she seems like something that could, something that could be prey, right? But it turns out that she's actually a mongoose, right? Yeah. Like the rodent that you thought was going to be prey is really a mongoose. I mean, it goes back to the whole thing that everything has to have a double. And I suppose that's the point. This whole book is about mirrors, you know? And so you have the mirror between between Lily and Granny Weatherwax because they're nearly identical sisters. Uh, but also then between Lily and first Desiderata and now Magret as fairy godmother. And then the fact that, like, the stepsisters who are with Amberella are kind of paralleled with the three, like, those three as a unit are paralleled to the three fairies, like Sleeping Beauty, you know? Um, in the original Disney one, the ones that are green, blue, and red. Fairy Hedgehog, Fairy Daisy, and Fairy... I don't remember. What's Magrat's name? Fairy... I don't remember. Oh, gosh. It's funny. I just remember that. Yeah. And it's a fun... I really like the the whole... Because it, it goes back to equal rights with how Ekaterina was going to borrow the mind of an eagle and then ended up nearly becoming an eagle. And this is the reverse, where you bent and warped a mind which knows one... Or it once knew just being an animal and now... You've trapped it in a shape and a mind that doesn't belong to it. You know, so it's like a yeah. human that wants... Like the wolf. Oh my god, that scene mm. with the wolf where it's so piteous. And I was like, I don't know where this is going. And then they just mercy kill it. Like they just behead that motherfucker. It's been caught between being a wolf and human for too long. She can't fix it. She can't push it back towards being a wolf. Mm. And so it's like starving to death because it can't... The reflexes and the single-minded focus that a predator needs in order to kill its prey is not really compatible with all of the synapses that a human has, all of the random thoughts ping-ponging off of each other. And so it literally can't hunt. Mm. 
Yeah. It's a it's a very sad scene. Like this idea that she like Lilith really mangled this animal in order to make it fit into the re- the, the little red riding hood fairy tale. Yeah. Is basically what happens. I mean, she's willing to yeah. kill humans. Oh yeah. She feeds she, it says she feeds stories people. Yeah, but she also just like kills that toy maker for not knowing how to sing. Yeah. Mm. It's it, so it's Fairy Hedgehog, Fairy Daisy, and Fairy Tulip. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, and so we we get this middle section in the book, now that we've started kind of talking about it, where Granny and the and Nanny Granny, Nanny, and Magret run across sort of the first experiments that Lilith did with storytelling and making people fit into these stories. So we get they they run across the little red riding hood story. They run across a Sleeping Beauty story where there's this woman, this this girl who's been put to sleep in a tower. They run across the three bears and the three pigs, or somebody tells them a story about the three bears and the three pigs in a uh, nearby village. There's also a Wizard of Oz reference because the, the farmhouse falls on Nanny Og's head and her new hat saves her life. But then you get all these dwarves who are suddenly singing around the house and they don't know why they're there. Yeah, they're singing the Ding Dong song, which is so funny because there's a song in Peppa Pig that's called the Bing Bong song. And as someone who has so many (laughs) younger siblings, I have been subjected to the Bing Bong song time without end. (laughs) There's also a Rapunzel reference as well, because Granny Weatherwax says that this has happened before, that there is another witch named Black Alice, who was considered one of the most powerful witches ever to ever to exist. Mm who also got really involved with playing roles in fairy tales. And it's implied that she died because of Hansel and Gretel. Like, Hansel and Gretel killed her. And that was the end of Black Alice. Black Alice is a character who we never actually see in the Discworld, but who is famous in the lore of the Discworld. She will be referenced many times, especially in the witches' books. But this is the first time that we hear about her. Black Alice is a, is a creature or witch from, like, actual mythology. Or from, like, folk mythology, not specifically any kind of pantheon. Especially around, like, the British Isles. I don't know much about her. I know that that's a thing, but I don't know much about, like, the mythology itself. Yeah, there's a really good portrayal of Black Alice as a character in um, the Skullduggery Pleasant book. Oh, okay. Mm. I haven't read those, so I wouldn't know. I think you'd really like them. I probably would. I think I've had them on my list since you mentioned them. Black Annis is a bogeyman figure in English folklore. She is imagined as a blue-faced hag or witch with iron claws and a taste for human flesh. She is said to haunt the countryside of Leicestershire, living in a cave in the Dane Hills with a great oak tree. It's interesting as well the fact that like she became entranced or she became enthralled in too many stories, and that's what led to her end. The legend around Black Annis is the character of Jack in the Graveyard Book. You know where there's. All of, there's so many nursery rhymes and folk songs that have this character Jack in them, you know, and it's solved by like the Jack, the Jacks of all the trades, and then you have the man Jack uh, that goes after the oh I don't remember the protagonist's name in the graveyard book, but uh, yeah, uh, it's it's Bod because it's Bod. after nobody, which is a reference to the Odyssey, but yeah, yeah. his name's Bod. Yeah, so. You know, I think it's an interesting one because then the counter strike that they lead leaves Man Jack alone 
you know, mm. as the last Jack standing. So technically, he is then he's the Jack of all the stories. The way that they talk about stories in this is fascinating, and the ways in which they want to repeat, and that they're attracted to a world like the Discworld because of the way that it sits on this edge of reality. Mm. There is also because a any book written in the 20th or 21st century can't help but do this if it's talking about fairy tales. There's also a reference or what I would like to call a pot shot at Disney in this because Granny is reading the book that uh, Desterada wrote about the situation in Genua. And she writes... Now L rules the city as the power behind the throne, and Baron S, they say, has been killed, drowned in the river. He was a wicked man, though not, as, not I think, as wicked as L, for she says she wants to make it a magic kingdom, a happy and peaceful place. And when people do that, look out for spies on every corner, and no man dare speak out, for who dare speak out against evil done in the name of happiness and peace? Little, little pot shot at Disney there. She wants to make a magic kingdom. Yeah. I mean, like, they're right, too. They're dead right. This book, this book, I think, is the first one that feels like there's actual POVs, you know, between, because in other books, in other books, like, I'm thinking, especially sorcery, the way it would switch between the wizards at the university. Like, obviously, this happens in pretty much every Discworld book, where there's a couple cast of characters who you see what's happening to them. But, like, in Sorcery, you know, where it goes between the wizards who are at the university with Coin, and then you have Rinsman and Nigel, and, you know, all this. But they always feel, like, very yeah. harsh cut-off points, you know, where they're like, this is this, and then there's, like, a harsh break, and you go to that one. But the, the switching of POVs between the three witches in, in this book feels very organic. And I really, yeah, uh, I really like the way that they do with the letters. You know, how, like, it feels organic that way. Yeah, and Annie Ogg's letters, how they give, like, an insight into this instead of just having it be a thought. Like, you know, there's no reason for them to put the letters in. They could just say that Nanny Ogg is writing, you know. Obviously, this is a travel book, so it makes sense that letters are being written back home, being like, cooey, look where I am. It's so fu- Oh, my God. It's too much. I'm sorry, that's a phrase I've started saying from my friend Shay. She keeps saying that. She keeps saying that, and now it, now I've just... I like how she always draws the picture and then puts an X where they are in the picture. Well, here's the thing, your old mum doing time in prison again. I'm an old lag. You'll have to send me a cake with a file in it, and I shall have little arrows on my clothes. Just my joke. This is a sketch of the dungeon. I'm putting an X where we are, which is inside. Margaret is shown wearing a posh dress. She has been acting like a courgette, also including Esme getting fed up because she can't get the lock to work, but I expect it will all be okay because the good ones win in the end, and that's us. But I love that. Where are we in the dungeon? Oh, we're inside of it. <laughs> we're just inside. <laughs> yeah, and she's writing to her son, Jason Og, which I can't remember if they introduced Jason in Weird Sisters. But Jason Og is definitely one of the more prominent members of the Og children. He's kind of your yeah. They reference it. They they reference a lot where they're talking about like our Jason, our whoever. And he's the the big burly blacksmith of a badass, which is the town where they 
where they live, and he knows the secret of the horseman's word, which he passes on to Granny Weatherwax. He can shoot anything that that lives because he knows the the horseman's word. Yeah, I think that that's interesting. I, I like the idea too, where he asks Magrat. He says, "You know, I, you know, I heard that there's a lot of people who leap out at other people in foreign parts and try to rob them." And Magrat's like, "Oh, don't worry, I'll take care of them." And and he says, "Oh, I just know that some of the those things are endangered." <laughs> Because he knows that Granny and Nanny don't really need anyone to take care of them. Which I think is great. Yeah, I also, I really like... uh, So, I love the Loire as a concept. The Loire, kind of the pantheon associated with uh, the Haitian... Is that how you pronounce the... I think it's Haitian. Yeah, Haitian. People from Haiti. Haitian? Mm, I might be thinking of Hawaii, but I think it's Haiti is how it's actually pronounced. I may be wrong, but the diaspora from Haiti, um, this is associated with their voodoo religion, um, is the Luat. It's kind of crept into Louisiana uh, voodoo. I have a healthy dose of respect for the Luat, but it's really interesting seeing depictions of them. And this one is generally quite positive in the way, like, they're talking about fat afternoon which is obviously a reference to it's so weird because genua is this kind of like italian city almost in some aspects in the way that it's presented and it sounds kind of like genoa and also the word genuine which is what it's trying to sell but then also it's like louisiana it's new orleans yeah it's also like louisiana as a state with the swamps and then genua is new orleans you know with fat tuesday uh, being the literal translation of Mardi Gras. Obviously, you know, like, Baron Saturday is a clear uh, reference to the the Loire Baron Sandy, um, who was also, weirdly, the villain in a James Bond film. Yes, although that depiction him. is not as respectful as this one. No, and then the black cockerel Legba is a reference to Papa Legba, who is also a Loire, um, specifically associated with Haiti. I thought as well because I had to learn about this in. I was doing The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. The, the use of cockerels in. Like, it's, it's interesting that they're. Uh, like, that it's a cockerel. Yeah. They talk about it because in The Wasteland, uh, in section five, what the thunder said they talk about, like, a rooster crowing. And, like, there's this whole legacy of roosters and chickens being used in sort of, like, pagan and voodoo practices. It's a really interesting thing. I can't find... There's a whole book written about chickens and their use in, like, spiritual beliefs. I think it's interesting because, like you said, this book does a lot to expand some of the magical traditions that we've seen. Because so far, we've only seen hadology and geometry and then sorcery. And now we get to see Lilith's he- mere magic, which we've talked about, but then also voodoo. So there's this great scene when Nanny Og meets Mrs. Gogol, and they're kind of like seeing what'll happen between the two of them if like they can be trusted. They're sort of sizing each other up. Where I come from, we call it witchcraft, said Nanny under her breath. Where I come from, we call it voodoo, said Mrs. Gogol. Nanny's wrinkled forehead wrinkled still further. 
Ain't that all messing with dolls and dead people and stuff, she said. Ain't witchcraft all running around with no clothes on and sticking pins in people, said Mrs. Gogol, levelly. Ah, said Nanny, I see what you mean. She shifted uneasily. She was fundamentally an honest woman. I've got to admit, though, she added, sometimes maybe just one pin. Mrs. Gogol nodded gravely. Okay, sometimes maybe just one zombie, she said, but only when there's no alternative. Sure, when there's no alternative. When, you know, people ain't showing respect like when the house needs painting. (laughs) I think that's such an interesting, like, introduction of witchcraft versus the voodoo, which Mrs. Gogol is a practitioner of. And there's this idea as well that a lot of voodoo is manipulating belief, which is something that we have also seen in the disc world before. Yeah, uh, like, at at the end, there is... uh, when Granny Weatherwax is laid out on the bed, Mrs. Gogol asks, you know, could she, she could just summon up a whole pantheon of gods. And people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I found it here. So the book is by Paige Smith and Charles Daniel. The Chicken Book, being an inquiry into the rise and fall, use and abuse, triumph and tragedy of Gallus Domesticus. And so the image of a cock stood on a roof tree in a flash of lightning is evocative of early Christian Jewish and Zoroastrian traditions which revered the rooster as a creature which can ward off evil omens. And it's interesting that this one is the only thing that Grebo seems to be afraid of, and also that it's directly <laughs> yeah. linked to uh, directly linked to a Loire, uh, one of the Loire, uh, the devoutly religious within the Kyanian period of Iran, quote, had a cock to guard him and ward off all evil spirits. Yeah, and then it, he's also very instrumental in the empowering of Mr. Saturday, who we learn is actually Baron Saturday, who was mm. the original ruler of the city who had been killed by Lilith and the duck, who is the, the prince in question, and also that he is Emberella's father and Mrs. Gogol is her mother, which is... It, it, they never actually tell Amberella this information, but it's fairly obvious from the the text itself. What did you think of Mrs. Gogol and Baron Saturday? Obviously, the romance thing kind of being the subtext to it, uh, but I like the idea of him just being a zombie worker. And it's interesting as well, because you get a Robinson Crusoe reference, where she's like, this is Saturday, and they say, oh, man, Saturday like Man Friday in Robinson Crusoe. But it's interesting because of a link to Mort. I I wonder, did you, or not to Mort, sorry, to Rincent. I wonder, did you pick up on that? I don't think I did pick up on it. Yeah, so, like, the whole plot of the start of The Color of Magic is that, you know, like, is that Rincewind is trying to escape from death, Death is always like, oh, I'm going to collect your soul here, but Rincewind defies that. Uh, in Cephalopolis, in, like, at the at the rim of the Discworld and stuff. Yeah. Mrs. Gogol and the Baron turned around. Death put down its drink and stepped forward. Baron Saturday straightened up. I am ready to go with you, he said. Death shrugged. Ready or not, he seemed to indicate was all the same to him. But I held you off, the Baron added, for twelve years. He put his arm around Urzuli's shoulders. When they killed me and threw me in the river, we stole life from you. You stopped living. You never died. 
I did not come for you then. You didn't. I had an appointment with you tonight. You know, so like everyone else, even when they die, they're not dead. They just stop living. Mm-hmm. Whereas Rinswin, when he has an appointment to die, he continually misses it. Right. And then, like, to go back to another meeting of the Windle Poons fan club. <laughs> you know, like, he is dead, but then at the end when all of it is fixed, only then does death show up, and I know death has been removed, and the new death is building up, but it seems to be that, like, only when Windle Poons has come to terms with the fact that he's dead and the role that he has to play, which is being dead, and what he's had to do to stop them all from becoming a thing in Ankh-Morpork. Only then does death come. You know, like, that's when his appointment was. Absolutely. I mean, in this I'm case, yeah. I'm the case wide open. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had about death and when he comes from people and when he doesn't. And does he actually know when everyone's going to die? Is Rincewind a strange exception to this? Or is it, like, I don't know. This is a really good question. But it's also like the fact that people who are, you know, who, who are practitioners of magic are, you know, are able to see death. But it's so funny that, like, so many of them don't recognize death. Like, they have this belief that, like, because they know when they'll die, that they're not afraid of death. But then they never recognize him. He's always a stranger in a crowd. Or, like, when he goes past Magrat and Nanny Og on the stairs to Lily's appointment. You know, that they go, like, oh, God, he's got, you know, like, he's got a great costume on. And then they realize. Yeah, it, it's, it is fascinating because Rincewind always recognizes death whenever he sees him. Yeah, like, death is trying to be subtle when he, he meets him in the market in Ankh-Morpork. Like, the very first time they meet in Color of Magic. Right. And Rincewind's like, no, stop, stop, stop. Your death. No, not today. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is a great question. I, I would be fascinated to know how this unfolds as we as we continue with the series. The Mrs. Goggle and Voodoo thread in this also brings up a really interesting thing about race in the Discworld. Because, as we are told, these are the first Black people that Nanny Og specifically has ever met in this mm. city and the city pre seems pretty diverse racially, but a lot of the culture that we're being given is explicitly black, especially the food. The food is very New Orleans, but it's very, very black food as well. The idea of people making delicious food out of stuff that their betters have discarded. Like this is the only stuff you can eat. And so yeah. we're going to make like really good food out of it. Th this is all the history of black cuisine, especially in the South, in the U.S., is this idea of, well, we don't want, you know, the, craw the crawdads or whatever. So you can have that. But then they make it something delicious. Right. And then, of course, by that point, white people are like, oh, it's delicious. So we were we actually wanted it the whole time, which is absolutely not true. That's a whole different podcast if we wanted to talk about that. Yeah, because you have the footnote. That, like, this is the first black people they meet, but, like, it's very... Yeah. Oh, I managed to open it on the exact right page. What the fuck? <laughs> Racism was not a problem on the Discworld because, what with trolls and dwarfs and so on, speciesism was more interesting. Black and white lived in perfect harmony and ganged up on green. <laughs> it's a nice thing 
like, it's nice and funny, but also you have to remember that this is a white author writing about it, and he's writing about a specific, like, diaspora with the, like, the Loire, uh, a belief in them is a closed practice, so really he shouldn't be writing about them. But he's also writing about a specific diaspora, and you always kind of have to, like, be like, well, it's a white person who's writing this. Because I go back and forth about this. I I feel like it is very respectful what he's doing here. And obviously, neither of us is black. So I would be very interested to know what a black reader thinks of the way that he has portrayed them here. However, I'm not sure I agree that only... I'm not sure I think that white authors shouldn't write people of color in their books. Because we wouldn't ever have any people of color in fantasy. Obviously, that's not what i'm saying but it's like you you just you need to be aware when reading i think especially in the way that he's depicted this that like he's a white person writing about a significantly disenfranchised diaspora of people and that's like it's just something that you need to be conscious of that's all i'm saying like oh yeah obviously own voices is preferable but like if you know look if white people can do it and not be offensive then like yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I just, I think that there are people, I think there's enough about pe- black people not being in fantasy, like, that I just, I yeah. enjoy it every time I see it, as long as it's not overtly racist. Because, yeah, exactly. like, I just, I just want a fantasy world in which it's very diverse and that you have a lot of different traditions being being shown in it. I also think that what what gives him the advantage in this too is that he actually specifically says that voodoo as a practice is something that exists across the multiverse. And so I think that he says that specifically to give this character and this portrayal of voodoo some flexibility. So that way yeah. he's not trying to say this is how voodoo works on planet Earth. This is how voodoo works on the disc world. Now, yeah. He is still obviously portraying a specific cultural practice by calling it voodoo, so we can argue about whether it's supposed to represent voodoo or not. But I, I honestly, the, when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, that's him trying to say, like, I'm not trying to make claims about this. I'm trying to, like, integrate it into this particular community. But, like, it's a representation of aspect of voodoo that, you know, like, that Terry Pratchett has perceived or whatever. But the problem with saying that things are bad rep is that like it's a depiction of a certain it's a representation of a certain form of something and so therefore you're nearly erasing that mm-hmm. and so like if it's not explicitly offensive like like jk rowling and yes. her her writing in like troubled blood on trans characters that's harmful that's not representation at right. all right but like or her goblins that, like, which are caricatures yes. of jewish stereotypes yeah, or the only Irish character being obsessed with blowing stuff up. And I obviously know this is not a racial thing, but it's like, you know, it was written in the early 90s, and having the only Irish character be obsessed with blowing things up is very, very on the nose, Joanne. Mm. An extremely common form of autism. And so to then, like, say that that's not representation is kind of taking away from who it does represent. I'm sorry, I need to, like, also, I, I need to also say that, like, if people say that it's a harmful, like it's perpetuating harmful stereotypes, of course. But David Levithan's books are yes, a por- there. You go. That's a good example. Yeah. David Levithan's books are a portrayal of the gay experience, but not the modern gay experience. They're a portrayal of mm. someone who is gay in the eighties and nineties, basically. And he's yeah, he's writing that, and so it feels out of touch to modern 
gay readers because it doesn't represent their experience. There's one novel where it's kind of like narrated, I don't remember which one, by like ghosts of old gay men, so it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, something like that, where there is a disconnect between the author and what they're trying to represent somewhat benevolently and the actuality of the world that the representation is going into. I completely agree. That that definitely makes sense. Why does Nana Gogol also just have a Baba Yaga house? It's so strange. Like her Mrs. Gogol? Yeah. She has yeah. she has a house with duck feet and it walks around and it's very much like the the Baba Yaga from and her house which is chicken legs in Eastern European folklore. And obviously like, you know, you can go back to this this idea of like stories reiterating and be there being different versions of things. But it's very strange. The fact that this is meant yeah. to be a swamp community and you just have like a Baba Yaga house. I'd be interested to know if, because I don't, again, I don't know very much about this particular tradition. I'd be interested to know if there is a parallel in this tradition. And that's where where Pratchett's drawing from. But to kind of go back to the, the thing about race in Genua, I think it's interesting the ways in which the people who live there, the people who support Mrs. Gogol, the people who are resisting Lilith are the people who have been gentrified, right? By, yeah. by Lilith. Because it, the idea is that this city used to be more like the people who lived in the swamp. But be, since Lilith moved in, it's become more European. It's become more fairy tale-ish. And there's a scene where she's, when she's like empowering Baron Saturday, all of these people show up. Mrs. Gogol could feel them among the trees, the homeless, the hungry, the silent people, those forsaken by men and gods, the people of the mists and mud whose only strength was somewhere on the other side of weakness and whose beliefs were as rickety and homemade as their homes. And the people from the city, not the ones who lived in the big white houses and went to balls and fine coaches, but the other ones. They were the ones that stories are never about. Stories are not, on the whole, interested in swineherds who remain swineherds and poor and humble shoemakers whose destiny is to die slightly poorer and much humbler. These people were the ones who made the magical kingdom work, who cooked its meals and swept its floors and carted its night soil and were its faces in the crowd and whose wishes and dreams, undemanding as they were, were of no consequence. The Invisibles. And I thought this was so fascinating because this idea that the stories, there are people out there that stories are not about, but you need those people to make the stories work. It's their labor that makes the Magic Kingdom work, which you could say is like a, another pot shot at Disney, right? And their labor practices. But it's also like the idea of you need people to be in a lower class to make the dreams of the upper class happen. Yeah. And it's very racialized in this. Like yeah. It's mostly black people. In the swamp. Yeah, in the swamp. And then, like, they t there's a quote when they... Uh, when, when Granny Weatherwax is going, and she sees, like, the mirrors. She sees Lily being there, and Nanny Og. You know, she, she realizes that there are witches in here, and that they're at the top. There's a quote that's, you know, like, there's two cities here, you know. The one, that, the one that's presented to the public and the one that's been gentrified basically into oblivion to pave the way for this. Yeah. I also think it's fascinating that Emberella, who is our Cinderella stand-in, is black. Mm. I 
again, makes sense in this city that she would be black, but uh, people tend to have really weird reactions to casting black actors, black people in these roles, which they keep insisting are European, even though black people have been living in Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's just, it's really, really interesting to me that even in the early 90s, Pratchett was saying, like, no, this character can be black. Yeah, and it's it's interesting as well, because, like, they have cast their, uh, for the upcoming Little Mermaid live-action adaptation, where David Diggs plays Sebastian, they've cast an actress of color as Ariel. Oh, her name is Haley, Halley. It's Halley. She's part of a, a really, really good pop R&B duo. Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, you know, where they have that, but then it's interesting as well, tying back into our discussion on motion pictures in the last episode, the quote from Peter Dinklage, because here we have also Casanunda, who is a dwarf, and then, you know, like, where is the quote from Peter Dinklage about the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves film where they're saying that they're progressive for casting um, a Hispanic actress as Cinderella, right? Yes. Yeah, and then also perpetuating this harmful stereotype of, you know, of these dwarves that he spent his whole life trying to raise awareness on, and that they haven't noticed. Um, so it's interesting in this that the Cinderella analog, even Amberella, <laughs> is a person of color. Yeah, and when she when she takes control, because the at the end they put her in charge, although. Granny has the duel with Mrs. Gogol about whether or not Mrs. Gogol gets to be involved in Umbrella's rule because she says you can make her you can make her queen but once you start making choices for her like that's when it's going to get bad again. So it's interesting that the first thing Umbrella wants to do is go to the Mardi Gras, right? She she wants to connect back with that culture of the city yeah. instead of following in Lilith's more gentrified footsteps yeah although i thought it was very funny how everyone leaves the room because they realize what uh happens when a, a ruler says that something isn't strictly mandatory yeah this isn't strictly mandatory you better go yeah and it's it's an interesting is it just like it's an interesting like if you've been in the lens of like a trauma response you know yeah like it, it's very sad where they spent their whole i don't know how, how long was it that 12 years you know, from between a while, when, yeah, because yeah, twelve years. Baron, Baron Saturday has been dead for twelve years, so Lilith has been kind of holding power for twelve years. They spent that whole thing, you know, like afraid to express themselves. So then, when the new, like, lawfully appointed ruler comes in and wants to express herself, that they don't know what to do with this. Yeah, that's absolutely true. What did you think about the duel between Mrs. Gogol and Granny Weatherwax? Oh, it was so cool. It's so cool when she puts her hand into the fire and the doll goes on fire and then Mrs. Gogol is like, how did you do that? And then Nanny August is just like, she didn't do that. She made you think to do it because that's what headology is. It's Mrs. Gogol's belief that the doll is Granny Weatherwax that allows her to stick it with a pin. And so Granny, Granny Weatherwax is just reversing it. Yeah. Because the doll was meant to be Lilith, and then all of a sudden she changes it to be right. Granny Weatherwax because they're similar. But, you know, like, it's already seeding this possibility that, you know, like, a belief in objects is kind of 
malleable, you know, mm-hmm. or, or like the stories of things can be changed. I really like the line where they're talking about how the, they've severed the story by smashing the shoe and turning the clock and that like it's severed like this, it, it's wound around the disc world and then the end gets severed. You know, like the story doesn't know what to do and it will latch onto anything it can. Uh, you know, yeah. and then everything becomes more malleable. So the, the Lily doll becomes the Esme doll becomes on, or becomes on fire. That's not a sentence, but you know what I mean. It becomes on fire. Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, it's technically not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So they go to the ball to prevent Umbrella from marrying the prince, the duck, who is actually a frog mm. because Lilith is trying to do more than one story here. Right. Yeah. Because Lilith is very interested in making animals believe that they're human or taking the shape of a human, which we know that Granny has actually done as well, because when people cross her, sometimes she tur- she makes them think that they're a frog instead of turning them into a frog. Like when, when Lily says, oh, you would have done the same, you know, to get this to get to this position. And Granny Weatherwax says, no, I would have thought it, but wouldn't have done it. It always wears off when Granny does it. Because <laughs> the implication is that she did make someone think they were a frog once for like a couple of days. And then it, then yeah. it wore off. But he had it coming. And it's so. interesting that they, like, this is kind of an, a nearly, like, as explicit as possible reference to bar- to borrowing from equal rights. Yes. Which is a, a separate form of headology. Which yes. they kind of then just forget about. like Because... It's not been forgotten about. It's just not in this book. No, but between between then and now, they like there's no there's no other references to borrowing. Well, we'll see. We'll see. What do you mean we'll see? It does say we it, have seen. It does. Right, she does. Uh, it does say that she can recognize the minds of like she can ride the minds of animals better than she can ride the minds of people, which is how she's able to immediately identify the the sisters, and then she does go into the mind of the wolf. Yeah, and they talk about how like simple it is the mind of a, a carnivore or the mind of a predator. Right. Where it ha- or the mind of an ant is very simple. It has one logical chain of thought, which is go here, you know, carry, 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 go here, get in the sandwiches. <laughs> so yeah, there is that, and and we will see more about borrowing later. It's maybe not in this book, but they ha- certainly have not forgotten about it. Yeah, but I said up to this point, like between when oh, it was introduced, point. between when I it was see. introduced and this reference in Witches Abroad, there's really nothing. Right. Bring back yeah, no, borrowing. I, there isn't. There isn't. You yeah. are absolutely correct. I think borrowing is a bit like Haman in the JoJo's franchise, where they had it in parts one and two, and then they were like, no, punching ghosts are much more interesting. And then they much just, more interesting. Yeah, yeah, and then they just never do anything sense. with it ever again. Have you seen JoJo's? I haven't, but I've heard so much about it mm. from a lot of people. Yeah. I don't but think of course, you'd like all it. Of, <laughs> of course, all the shape-shifting culminates in their no. transforming no. Rebo no. No. into a human. A human-shaped cat. No, I don't like this. You didn't like it. I laughed so hard in lots of parts of this. Why did they have because, to make him sexy? No. Because... Because he is sexy. He's just cat sexy. Yeah, but then, okay, but, like, why did they have to make 
it seemed like Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax were attracted to him. That was very weird. I did not, that made me extremely uncomfortable. Like, if they had other characters, you know, who did not know that Grebo was originally a cat, have that reaction, then that would have been okay. But I think it's more like shock that he's attractive more than like, I mean, cause like they're not, neither one of them like come on to him or anything. It's more like they're shocked that he looks that way. They have a hello a sailor moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or a hello nurse moment. If you're a fan of the Animaniac. <laughs> Grebo is clearly a cat. Like he thinks like a cat. He obviously has problems with his new body at times. But what did you think about his shenanigans? He's just a madman wandering around causing chaos. Like, I love that for him. Uh, he's in his, like, he's in his just insane era. I love that for him. Yeah, but again, I didn't like that they made him sexy. Because Grebo is kind of like, yeah, he's cat sexy, but we've never really been presented his POV to the extent that we know that he's cat sexy. We just get like a narrative that said that he's had sex with pretty much every cat in the local area. Uh, and right. The, narr- the narration makes him seem like a very ugly, bad up, uh, monstrous cat. Well, um, but he's he's ugly sexy. It's like Adam Driver or yeah. like somebody who Stop. isn't conventionally you cannot- attractive. Stop. You cannot bring the phrase ugly sexy to me and expect me to take it seriously not like vomit slightly ugly sexy is a real thing no it's a real thing name one person who's ugly sexy adam driver he's not attractive at all sexy oh he is so attractive most of the internet disagrees with you on this (laughs) you and mcgregor real thing is a man who's attractive yeah but he's not ugly sexy no there are are ugly ugly sexy sexy is not a thing don't yeah, it is. Uh, Tim is Curry, this... ugly, sexy. Tim uh, Curry is just, ugly, just... sexy. No, no. They're just attractive. Yeah. No, no. I, I'm going to disagree with you on that one. No. But is this the first that's... disagreement of the podcast? Is this our first fight? This is our, our first, first... Og fight? This is our first fight, and it's over ugly, sexy. Ugly, Listeners, sexy. Listeners, write in whether you think ugly, sexy is a thing or not. And I'm probably, I know I'm probably going to lose because y'all are a bunch of fucking weirdos on the internet <laughs> actually i'm gonna ask lazy right now oh lazy will back me up oh fuck you it's true i hate you it's true <laughs> I, i'm just gonna tell you that right now that lazy is not your go-to backup i think on this one no but I like be wrong lazy is the only person that i've really spoken to about things that have happened on the podcast so <laughs> lazy just saying is ugly sexy a thing Asking for Nanny Og related reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, that seems like an odd question to just come out of the blue at someone. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to leave it there. I don't know whether he's online or not. No, he's. We'll oh, see. No, he just came online. Obviously, he got a notification. <laughs> no, he's typing. We're have to see. He's typing. He said LOL in all caps. Um, <laughs> That's not an answer. Yeah, answer me, damn it. <laughs> Oh, he's still uh, typing. I feel like this this is Lozzie's first guest appearance on the podcast. Yeah, like yeah. we shouted him out he's... last episode, but like now he's basically <laughs> on this episode. He's basically on this episode. He is like our our call a friend. 
yeah, we're gonna we're gonna list the episode as episode eleven, which is abroad <laughs> featuring Lazi. <laughs> featuring Lazi. In what context? He says scumbag sexy is kind of ugly sexy. I don't know. What's the context? I don't. Oh, hold on, I'm actually messaging him. I said Grebo. That's the context. No, not no. It's not about Grebo. I'm contending that it's not a thing at all. Okay. Doesn't think. Ugly sexy is a thing. I'm gonna put Grebo, Adam Driver, Willem Dafoe, Tim Curry. <laughs> this is a strange list. That seems like it would be the list for like a uh, like a, a fuck Mary kill list, but like you've got Can an I extra. Can I just say though that I would watch this movie, whatever movie this is, that the Dreamcast is Adam Driver, Willem Dafoe, and Tim Curry. It would be so bonkers. Yeah, I'm I'd into watch it. That. Yeah. I yeah, think we, we've settled 100%. on the middle ground is that we'd watch this film. <laughs> we would watch this film. We just disagree about the attractive, he the said, kind of attractive. Oh, he said, lol, at Grebo in that list. And I'm like, that's not an answer. And he said, yes, I think it is. Ugh. Yeah, I told you he was going to back me up. All right. Now that we've got that settled, <laughs> I also love how even though poll. after... Through all of these things, all these adventures, I love that he wears the ginger cat mask, which is clearly made for a lady, but he, like, wears it because he always wanted to be a ginger cat. Mm. That was great. His visit to the kitchen with Mrs. Pleasant is wonderful, where he, like, laps the milk and eats the fish heads under the table and then curls up in front of the fire. Yeah. And I love that even though he is, like, this giant sexy ugly sexy man whatever you want to call him that that nanny og still (laughs) is like jail for you i love that when he shows up to save them from the guards that nanny og is like oh i knew he wouldn't go very far from his mummy like she still sees him as a little kitten i love their relationship it's great do you have any other thoughts about grebo no did i break you accidentally yes (laughs) i'm a broken woman (laughs) I am. I apologize. I apologize. Right, but I'm but running yeah, a Grebo, Twitter poll. Grebo... <laughs> I've run so many Twitter polls in the last couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> well, the magic does wear off. Grebo does go back to being a cat. So, yeah. or back to being cat shaped, I should say. He was always a cat, and that's part of the point of the transformation. There were two other things I wanted to talk about before I got into some of the references here. One of them is that this book also, besides expanding the types of magic that exist in the Discworld, it also expands the witches' mythology. We get the first mention here of the three witches' dynamic, the mother, the maiden, the crone, which they were like the the mother, the maiden, and the other one because they don't want to call Granny Granny Weatherwax a crone to her face. Although Lilith then does call her the crone later, that's important because even though witches are non-hierarchical and they don't like each other, the natural number of witches when they are together is three. And they have to be three in that very specific configuration. I thought about it because it's like this whole idea of the popular conception of witches being this coven and being this coven and then like them dancing naked. And I had to watch The Witch recently for class film directed by Robert Egger, the witch even, wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Such a funny line. You know, like this whole idea of what what is and what isn't actually 
witchy and what's just popular conception. But yeah, I think in a narrative which is about stories and stuff, the idea of the mother, the mother, the maiden, and the crow is a nice, interesting, like mythological thing because there's a lot of uh, triumvirate goddesses like Hecate in Greek mythology is uh, a goddess who, who takes three forms, and also you have like triple goddesses like um, Eru, Bamba, and Fola in Irish mythology, and then also the Marg and the Bob and the Maka, which I think would be more close to witches. Like, Hecate and the Margin are more close to what this book and the idea of three witches is than Eru, Bamba, and Fola. Yeah. Look, it's not an episode of Nanny Og if I don't bring up the fact that I'm Irish. <laughs> Yeah, and, and like a lot of that is in this, right? And the idea that women, whether you see this as misogynistic or not, women go through a lot of different titles throughout their lives, or they can go through a lot of titles throughout their lives, the maiden, the mother, and the crone, right? That as women age, the idea is that there's expected life events that happen, um, whereas men don't really go through those things, or at least societally, they're not framed that way. And so there's that as well, which I think is really interesting but yeah, I also love the, I loved the meeting at the beginning with the witches. Magrat's not there, but Granny and Nanny are, and we get to meet some of the other witches who live in Lanker, and they're arguing about how there's not many of them left, and we get to meet Old Mother Dismas, who is someone who will be referenced many times in future wish books. We, I think we only see her a few times, but she's like a minor character. I love Old Mother Dismas. Well, she's the senior witch because she's the oldest. Right, she's the oldest one, and she has unfixed oracular vision because <laughs> her second sight basically got detached, and so it's impossible to know exactly where she thinks she is or what conversation she thinks she's having. And the best you can do is just say what you need to say, and hopefully she'll get it the next time she passes through. <laughs> so it's she's a funny character because she's having a, clearly a very different conversation from the rest of them at any given moment. She's a bit like the lady in, I forgot her name, in um, Reaper Man. Mrs. Who Cake. has her, yeah, Mrs. Cake, who has her second side, or has her um, foresight on constantly. So she's, an she's answering questions before you mm -hmm. ask them. But old Mother Dismas isn't as focused as that. Like, she's not answering questions before you ask them. She's just somewhere else in time, or she's seeing somewhere else in time. Yeah, and it could be in the past or future. So you just don't really know. But yeah, no, that is very similar in a lot of ways. I thought that was fascinating. And I like that w apparently N Granny Weatherwax is so good at cards because she's been playing Old Mother Dismas. And once you play someone like that, you can play against anybody. So that mm. was really cool. I also, this was the first time I had noticed this, actually, as I was reading it this time. There's a lot, we talked a lot about parallels and a lot about doubling in this book. There is a lot in this book about the Oggs as a family. Nanny often, like, they talk a lot about Nanny and the way that she's, like, the matriarch of her family and the ways in which the numerous, numerous branches of Oggs all, like, have all this infighting against each other, how it's always, like, they don't, like... There's all these family feuds and any kind of encourages them indiscriminately. But if an outsider says anything bad about an og, they'll all turn on the outsider because you just you can't say anything about family. Right. 
I remember Ooh. reading about that the first time, but I didn't notice until this book the ways in which the Ogs are contrasted with the Weatherwaxes as a family. Because Nanny, she understands the fighting between Granny and Lilith as a family matter, but she struggles a bit to understand the ways in which her family is different from the Weatherwax family and how they have a different dynamic. Did you notice any of that in this book? She's definitely sympathetic yeah. Oh, yeah. to the thing. And I think that's the, like, that's the key distinction between her and Granny Weatherwax in situations like this is that Nanny Og is sympathetic mm-hmm. to this and understanding, whereas Esme is much more like, She's much more of a matriarch in the traditional British sense, where she has to be, like, stern and provide. Or I suppose, like, the family head, not necessarily the matriarch, because obviously there's the gendered perception that a mother must provide and do the cooking and the cleaning. But she's definitely more of the head of a family in the traditional sense. Yeah. In that regal... Like, she's like the queen, you know, except I don't think any of Granny Og Granny uh, Weatherwax's relatives are quite like Prince Andrew, so. <clears throat> I think that's fascinating because Nanny Og does like pull a lot of matriarchal ideas on their head because she doesn't. She is not yeah. do- associated with domesticity all that much. She has other people to do that for her, namely other members of her family. But it is interesting the ways in which her family bickers and fights and has these feuds, but at the end of the day, they're, they're family, right? They're all there for each other. But Granny's family is not there for each other. Like, one of them's going to lose tonight, right? So it's yeah. it was just a really interesting parallel because I didn't notice, I think, the first time how much they talk about the Ogs in this book. Yeah, for a book that's explicitly about the relationship between the Weatherwax sisters, there's a lot about yeah, the Ogs. Yeah, a lot about the Ogs. And especially... yeah these letters that are that um Githa is sending back to Jason mm-hmm. you know there's there's so many of them it's not just a once off thing right and there, it, it it shows this genuine connection and this genuine uh, yeah they're they're a very dysfunctional family but they love each other whereas granny's family is dysfunctional in a way that can't be fixed yeah and then there's also the difference because like they're like oh yeah she got kicked out of the house cuz she was like so wanton, right? And Nanny's like, well, I, you know, I was wanton, you know, when I was a teenager. She's like, but you didn't use magic, right? You didn't, you didn't force anyone yeah. to do something they didn't want to do. Yeah. So that, that was really interesting as well. There are a lot of different references to things in this book. We've already mentioned Lobsang Dibbler. Uh, there's, I, I was surprised that they actually do mention that Granny went to Ankh-Morpork Pork before. I, did not remember really if they talked about equal rights all that much in these later books, but apparently we do get this reference to equal rights in which she talks about having gone to a big city like Ankh-Morpork, Pork. And they often ask her when they get to Genua, they're like, is this what a big city is like? But Genua is like very different than Ankh-Morpork. Pork. So she doesn't have all of the, she thinks it's going to be like Ankh-Morpork, Pork, but it's not. So it's that we do get that reference to equal rights. We also get a very, very brief reference to the City Watch, where she talks about, at one point, she talks about the how different the Genua guards are from the City Watch of Ankh-Morpork. 
and how they're like in these smart uniforms and they seem like they actually belong together, unlike the City Watch, who are just kind of this disreputable bunch. So we get that as well. When Granny is going to the card sharks, both Magra and Nanny are worried that she's going to use magic to win. And Nanny actually says, but using magic, it's tempting fate. And Magra responds, no, not fate. And I believe that that is a reference to the lady from The Color of Magic. So I just thought that was a really interesting Color of Magic callback. Uh, We also get the first reference, I believe, to dwarf bread in this book. I think it's really funny um, because it's a direct riff off of Lemus bread, the elven bread from Lord of the Rings that, you know, like you'll never go hungry when, when you have Lemus because it's so filling, but with dwarf bread, you'll never go hungry because it'll make you realize how much else you could feasibly palate. (laughs) Before you would eat the dwarf bread. Yeah. So dwarf bread, that's going to be an on running joke in the disc world, the dwarf bread. And uh, But this is the first reference we get here. We get other Lord of the Rings references as well, because when they run across the dwarf mine, there's the reference to the Mines of Moria, like the speak friend and enter, but they can't find the magic runes. So they're just like, open up, you know, on the, and they're like, we paid a lot for those magic runes. A minor moment from the book, which isn't in the film, is that Gollum is tracking them through the Mines yes. of Moria and is swimming after. And we get it in this, you know, where they knock him off before they go off on their brooms. Yeah. Yeah. So we get it. We do get a Gollum reference. And what's interesting is that I think it's more subtle than the other references, because like the fairy tale references are very obvious references to those fairy tales. This one, unless you've read that section of Lord of the Rings or you're familiar with Gollum as a character, you wouldn't necessarily get it. Hmm. Tessa. I went to find this thing and I opened the book up on the right oh, page. Oh, wow. Again. This is like a magical day for you. <laughs> yeah. Someone's following us, hissed Magrath. The two pale glows are peered at the edge of the lamplight. Eventually, they turned out to be the eyes of a small gray creature, vaguely frog-like, paddling towards them on a log. It reached the boat. Long, clammy fingers grabbed the side and a lugubrious face rose level with Nanny Og. Oh god, now I'm gonna have to do my you're gonna have to do a golem voice. Hello, it said. It's my birthday. All three of them stared at it for a while. Then Grady Weatherwax picked up an oar and hit it firmly over the head. There was a splash and a distant cursing. <laughs> Horrible little bugger, said Granny as they rode on. Looked like a troublemaker to me. Yeah, said Nanny Og. It's the slimy ones you have to watch out for. I wonder what he wanted, said Magrat. And it's like isn't it, doesn't he say in The Hobbit that it's his birthday to Bilbo? Yes, it mm. does. Yeah. Because it's a birthday present. Yeah. The the references are really great in this. Uh, we haven't even talked about the fact that Magrat has her wand that she can only turn things into pumpkins with, which is a fun inversion when she turns the carriage into a pumpkin instead of the other way around. The the whole scene with the child who's supposed to be a little red riding hunter is like, I bet you a hundred million billion trillion squillion dollars you can't turn that into a pumpkin. It's like I've turned everything else into a pumpkin. <laughs> what do you, like why do you think this will be different? It's like maybe it will be. Which I think Maybe it will be. Yeah, like that's the whole point of this novel is that things things don't have to be what they are. Maybe at the end of the day this will be different. You know, like the ending of the Dark Tower series by Stephen King where Nothing is accomplished. The whole cycle is a story about failure, but then at the end, 
Roan, uh, Ronan of Gilead has the horn, and so there's the implication that this cycle will be better because he already has the horn. Uh, right. This will be maybe the last one. Yeah. Which I think is look. I'm willing to stand by the ending of the Dark Tower series. I really. Oh, like I do it. too. Yeah. Sam hates it, but it's it's one of the sources of contention in our literary discussions. Hi, Sam. Um, I'm signing my <laughs> test on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad we're not fighting anymore about this. <laughs> mm. I didn't realize this the first time, but I got it this time. Samedi nuit mort, which is the last day of Mardi Gras in Genua. That's Saturday Night Death, mm. which is obviously an inversion of Saturday Night Live. Totally went over my head the first time, first few times I read this, because I've read this book more than once. I got that book because I tried to tackle that literally. You know, summoning me more, where I was like, what does this be? Because I don't know what's worse. This is a question I keep posing myself. I don't know what's worse. The fact that I used to be, or the fact that I used to be fluent in French, like properly fluent, or the fact that I no longer am well, you have a much better accent than I do, so I would take that as a win. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing that's kept over the fact that I can actually do a proper accent. And I could probably, like, if I went to France, I could probably, like, decently hold the conversation, but I'm nowhere near as fluent as I used to be. But then I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like, Saturday night, dead. Dead Saturday night. And then I was like, oh, yeah, like SNL. Did this Saturday night death? Yeah. I've never seen and- SNL. Oh, yeah. Well, it's probably, there are some good sketches out there, but it's probably not worth really watching unless you're into that kind of humor. There's a lot more bad than there is good. How long do you think it took Terry Pratchett to write a Discworld book? I don't know, but by this point, he was having multiple come out a year. Okay, yeah, so it was probably a fairly quick turnaround between him starting the the book and it getting released, right? Yeah. Oh, I can't find an actual date for when it was released. It just says 1991. Uh, I wonder if I go into the Wikipedia page. Will it give me when it was first published? Because I thought thought it it would be just something that I, like, that that parallels it. But then when I googled when this thing came out, it was also, it was early 1991. And so I'm like, oh, because it's kind of like a, a, um, it's kind of like a uh, stereotypical scene you see in a lot of things. But the scene where Granny learns to play poker, or well, mm. not where she learns to play poker, but where she pretends Card not sharp. to. Yeah. yeah. Where she pretends not to and then wins back all the money that's been lost is like the scene in the bank shot episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where Will's uncle, whose name I don't know because I've, I've only ever seen three scenes from Scenes, mind you, not seasons, not episodes, only ever three scenes from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But he goes and he pretends not to know how to play pool and wins back all the money that Will has lost, like Nanny Og has. And so then he keeps, he he loses and then goes, no, 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 I, I think I can get this, you know, and then gets them to raise the stakes. And why don't we play for, you know, like real big stakes? And then he goes to the butler and says, like, bring out Lucille. And Lucille is his prize uh, pool cue that he's won loads of games and then just proceeds to annihilate them. Um, I saw that as a TikTok. But the, but the fact that it came out, that episode aired on February 25th, 1991, is really suspicious to me. 
that it's, you know, like, that it's a direct reference, maybe? Well, I think that this is a pretty, like, I think Grady Weatherwax is tapping into a story, right? Yeah. And the story is, is that you, if you have a bunch of card sharks or somebody who thinks they're going to get somebody else, like, take advantage of somebody else, eventually there will come along somebody yeah. who pretends to not know what they're doing, but secretly will take them for all they're worth. Yeah, because they need to learn to lose, but it's it's just, it's so strange to me that they came out in 1991, both. In the same year, yeah. Yeah. And feasibly because, because this came out at the end of February, there's feasibly a time period that it could have like influenced Pratchett while writing. I mean, because also Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is a sitcom, and it seems like the type of thing that Pratchett would watch because it's akin to a lot of the things in his books is this sitcom kind of humor. Yeah, that is absolutely true. All right, there are a lot of death sightings in this. So there's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven death sightings in this because he's like out and about in Genua near the end of the book. But the first one is when he comes for Desterada. So Desterada knows exactly when she's going to die because she's a witch. And so she makes, you know, she puts everything together. She even digs her own grave or has someone dig her own grave and then fill it in afterwards. So she has a whole conversation with Death, who does not fundamentally seem to understand the point of fairy godmothering. But there you go. And then the next reference to him is when Nanny and Granny are at Mardi Gras. They're passing a jug around, and it's just a really quick reference where she passes a jug to a tall figure on her left, and you see the all caps, thank you. And like you said, she doesn't really recognize him. She says, you know, them bones are painted on really good, but then she sort of realizes it afterwards that some that, that was something not quite right about that interaction. But it's never actually, all we see are the caps, though. It, we don't have more than that in that particular interaction. And then he, we see him, the, another guest stalked past the butler at the, in the ball where he tells the butler who asks about the ticket, I'm here incognito. Again, all in caps. That's that's really cool. And I, I like that nobody recognizes him, it appears, because a lot of people are dressed up as skeletons. So it, he really is there incognito because people just think it's a costume. We get another one at the buffet at the ball where Nanny again nudges him as he's helping himself to some lobster. Uh, and uh, she says, someplace, eh? Very nice. Good mask you've got there. Thank you. <laughs> so again, the the whole thing about people just not recognizing that it's not a costume, even witches who normally would. The next one is the one that you've talked about before, where he has the conversation with Baron Saturday about having an appointment with him tonight, and he takes Baron Saturday then. And then he, the other one you've also mentioned where he passes Nanny and Magrat on the stairs on his way up to the mirror room to take Lilith. And uh, they're talking, it's funny because they're talking about our one and only sort reference actually in this scene mm. because they're arguing about the sortian knee. They're like, it's a body part and uh, it's a hero. And that was his only weakness. And what is it? It's going to, but it's going to be nagging me all night. And then death actually tells them the heel, right? Oh, thanks. Anytime. So there, there's another death reference there, as well as a t sort reference. That's a two for a two for one. Yeah. Sort and death. 
And then finally, I counted this all as one, even though it's on separate pages. He is in the mirror with Lily and he says, you know, you have to find the one that's real. You're somewhere in between death and life. And then he says the exact same thing to Granny, only she knows exactly who is real. So those are all all of our death references, our death sightings in this book. I like the one where he's just like out drinking because really there's no reason for him to be there. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) he's just there. He's just hanging out. He decided to come early for the party. He just likes the lobster. That's what he was there for. Get some lobster. And I like that he's so helpful to tell them that it's the heel, the Sortian heel, not the Sortian knee. Very helpful, death is. So the first footnote, again, that was our only sort reference in this, but our first footnote is on the very first page, and I laughed so hard at this footnote, so I am going to read the whole thing. But when they're talking about uh, the Discworld, once upon a time, such a universe was considered unusual and possibly impossible. But then it used to be so simple once upon a time because the universe was full of ignorance all around and the scientists panned through it like a prospector crouched over a mountain stream looking for the gold of knowledge among the gravel of unreasoned, the sand of uncertainty and little whiskery eight-legged swimming things of superstition. Occasionally, he would straighten up and say things like, Hurrah, I've discovered Boyle's third law, and everyone knew where they stood. But the trouble was that ignorance became more interesting, especially big, fascinating ignorance about huge and important things like matter and creation, and people stopped patiently building their little houses of rational sticks in the chaos of the universe and started getting interested in the chaos itself. Partly because it was a lot easier to be an expert on chaos, but mostly because it made really good patterns that you could put on a t-shirt. And instead of getting on with proper science, footnote, like finding that bloody butterfly whose flapping wings cause all these storms we've been having lately and getting it to stop, scientists suddenly went around saying how impossible it was to know anything and that there wasn't really anything you could call reality to know anything about. And Hall, all of this was tremendously exciting. And incidentally, did you know there were possibly all these little universes all over the place, but no one can see them because they're all curved in on themselves? Incidentally, don't you think this is rather a good t-shirt? I thought that was great. I think that that says a lot about the state of science right now. And I liked the reference to the the butterfly. The A butterfly flaps its wings and it, that causes a chain of reaction of events that causes a storm. Yeah. Good stuff. What was your favorite footnote? I am going to go with... Oh, yeah. I like this one. It's kind of a commentary. Uh, so, some way downriver from the waterfall, which the second highest anywhere on the disc, and have been discovered in the year of the revolving crowd by the noted explorer Guy de Yo-Yo. Of course, lots of dwarfs, trolls, native peoples, trappers, hunters, and the merely badly lost have discovered it on an almost daily basis for thousands of years. But they weren't explorers, and didn't count. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea that, like, stories often warp our perception of things like, oh, it was discovered by this person because that's a good story, but we don't think about all the other people. Well, all the other people and also it. like the indigenous people who lived there before. Like, yes. this is not something that's discovered. It's something that like other people go to. Yeah. How can you actually discover something that's been there forever? Like, yeah, I get it. My favorite footnote is uh, the one about spelling, which becomes a running joke throughout the book. Where And this actually kind of fits into what you were saying because of the bear mountain. And it was because it was a bear mountain, B-A-R-E mountain, not because it had a lot of bears on it, but it's spelled 
B-E-A-R. And so a lot of people who are not from the village come in and 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 buy a bunch of bear paraphernalia and the the native guides to lead them to the bears and so on. And so like it's so lucrative that nobody corrected the spelling because they actually made a lot of good money off of it. But there's a footnote. Bad spelling can be lethal. For an example, the greedy seraph of Al-Yibi was once cursed by a badly educated deity, and for some days everything he touched turned to Glod, which happened to be the name of a small dwarf from a mountain community hundreds of miles away who found himself magically dragged to the kingdom and relentlessly duplicated. Some 2,000 Glods later, the spell wore off. These days, the people of Al-Yibi are renowned for being unusually short and bad-tempered. I like the Glod joke. I think the Glod joke was funny every single time that it happens in this book, like how they keep accidentally turning things into Glod. Uh, the princess who spins hay yeah. into Glod. <laughs> and like, could you imagine how miserable it would be to be Glod, this dwarf that keeps like getting wrapped up in these stories? I mean, I thought it like, I mean, misunderstanding from spelling or, or, or misinterpretation is kind of like, it's the, the oldest form of joke that isn't a sex or, like, poop joke, you know? Like, it is what it is. Like, so much of Shakespeare is built yeah. on this that, like, yes, it's funny, but I'm also, like, it doesn't elicit much of a response from me because it's, like, I expect this kind of word pl- wordplay, but the uh, what's funny is just the image of a miserable glod. Oh, yeah. That's what's funniest to me is this idea of this, like, dwarf like just being duplicated relentlessly like i don't know like it's just it's incongruous with the actual story that we know right like this is midas and the golden touch and so it's like this like getting it slightly wrong which i appreciate that kind of humor what's something that made you laugh out loud both of these moments have been brought up before but either the moment where granny weatherwax plays cards with the card sharp or the bit where the dwarf dropped the house on Nanny Og. Yeah. Her hat saves her life. Yeah, but I'm just thinking specifically that, like, just the fact that they dropped a house on her. Yeah, where they, and they want her shoes. Like, they're like, can we have her shoes? And they're like, yeah. why? <laughs> and they don't really know. Uh, all this Grebo stuff made me laugh, but also there's someone we haven't talked about yet uh, who I've mentioned before as being important, and then we actually get to see him in this book, but Casanuda, the the Discworld's second greatest lover. I think this character is hilarious, but I also love when they ask him, like, are you really the Discworld's greatest lover? And he's like, no, I'm number two, but I try harder. Mm. That that I thought was funny, and where they're like, "Are you a liar?" and he's like, "Oh, oh I'm a liar." And they're like, "Is that true?" No. <laughs> I I think that that is it's, he's a very funny character, and this is not the last time that we'll see him. And I love how interested he is in Nanny Og, like who is this? Like, I mean, the idea of Nanny Og is that she's past the prime of her life, right? Like she's she's not young anymore, and whenever she talks about you know, all of these sexual dalliances, she's usually talking about her youth, but here's actually someone who is very interested in her. And I, I think that that's, I think that's great. And I think it's funny and not, and not in a mean spirited way, just in a, like, I think it's just funny because these are two funny characters who are attracted to each other. I didn't care. I didn't, I didn't care for that, but what I thought was funny was when they were talking about how this, the slipper fit. Oh yeah. Nanny Og and how she'd have to get married to the princess. And he's like, 
or to the prince and is like, oh, if you want to go out with a frog, yeah, I'm fine with an open relationship. Like. <laughs> and when, when, when she actually storms up to put the shoe on, he's like, that's my friend. Like, he actually says that. He's like, that's my friend. <laughs> like, like, I know her. Oh, yeah. I just think he's funny. What's the thing that made you think in this book? I'm going to go with where they're be where they've been locked up by uh where they've been locked up by Lilith and it said it's staff locking us up, said Manny. I'd have had us killed. That's because you're basically good, said Bagrat. The good are innocent and create justice. The bad are guilty, which is why they invent mercy. I had that listed down as one of the things too, like this idea that like, and this is, this is another theme that will come up again. I'm thinking very specifically of a watch book that brings up this theme. Uh, the idea that like good people, like someone who's, who thinks that they're truly good and who are good people will often not hesitate to eradicate evil. Whereas bad people invent mercy, right? Because there's this idea that like they feel guilty or they want to be saved themselves. Although Nanny disagrees with her and says it's because she wants us to know that they're, that we've lost, mm. which is a big part of the book too. This idea of witches need to not kill each other because they they want the other person to know that they've lost. Mine is actually only a page later. So they're still imprisoned and... Magrat says that she sees Lily's point if it wasn't for the frogs and everything. Then you're nothing but a daft godmother, snapped Granny, still fiddling with the lock. You can't go around building a better world for people. Only people can build a better world for people. Otherwise, it's just a cage. Besides, you don't build a better world by chopping heads off and giving decent girls away to frogs. But progress, Magrat began. Don't talk to me about progress. Progress just means bad things happen faster. I love that because... I like the idea that you can't build a better word, world for people. People have to want a better world. They have It's that skin, right? You can't force people into a narrative because you think it's what's best for them. They have to decide to make their world better, to make their society better. Utopia can't be from the top down. It has to be from the down up. And I like the idea that she's like, progress... Progress is just another narrative, right? It's saying that things will get better or they have to get better. That's just another narrative. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So that that was like a really big thinker for me in this book. All right, we've covered a lot of things in this book. Next episode, we are going to Omnia and also returning to a Phoebe in Small Gods. We're going to talk about religion. Woo. Ooh. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? Um, they can find me mainly on Twitter, at SpicyNigel, where... And ask who Neil Ibrill is. <laughs> um, and then I also post a six-tweet-long rant about the new Poirot film, because they annoy me. You can find me on Twitter, at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, at Monkey Backlog. And you can also, on that same podcast, find our second weekly episode. Currently, I'm watching Lost. So it's called Tessa Watches Lost. I'm almost done with the third season. I'm scared. You can find this podcast at Nanny's Book Club on Twitter. And you can find us on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. In one of Desiderata's books, said Magrap, she said that there's a very interesting thing about seeing elephants. She says that on the stove plains, when people say they're going to see the elephants, it means they're simply going on a journey because they're fed up with staying in the same place. It's not staying in the same place that's the problem, said Nanny. It's not letting your mind wander. I'd like to go to, up towards the hub, said Magrap, to see the ancient temples such as are described in chapter one of The Way of the Scorpion. And they teach you anything you don't know already, would they? said Nanny, with unusual sharpness. Magrat glanced at Granny. Probably not, she said meekly. Well, said Nanny, what's it to be, Esme? Are we going home, or are we off to see the elephant? Granny's boomstick turned gently in the breeze. You're a disgusting old baggage, Githa Og, said Granny. That's me, said Nanny cheerfully. And Magrat garlic. I know, said Magrat, overwhelmed with relief. I'm a wet hen. Granny looked back towards the hub and the high mountains. Somewhere back there was an old cottage with the key hanging in the privy. All sorts of things were probably going on. The whole kingdom was probably going to rack and ruin without her around to keep people on the right track. It was her job. There was no telling what stupidities people would get up to if she wasn't there. Nanny kicked her red boots together idly. Well, I suppose there's no place like home, she said. No, said Granny Weatherwax, still looking thoughtful. No, there's a billion places like home, but only one of them's where you live. So, we're going back, said Magrat? Yes. But they went the long way, and saw the elephant. The end.